<laughs> Sorry, guys. There yeah. sirens going That's by my windows fun. here. Guess David's in Europe. <laughs> Welcome back to episode 34 of Acquired, the show about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today, we'll be talking about one of the great legends of a historically non-tech company in a technology city, Starbucks. And uh, I'm here with Dan Levitan in, uh, in Seattle, and, uh, and we are both sipping our Starbucks. So I've, uh, I've got uh, almond milk latte here. Dan, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a tall decaf Americano, the why bother drink. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, what is the point? Now, it's a, it's a good evening beverage, but I'll, uh, I'll ask you later why, um, why the no caffeine right now. Just like the taste of coffee, and I don't need non-natural energy. <laughs> Dan doesn't do drugs. <laughs> so, uh, listeners, before we dive into the show, um, a, couple of, uh, a couple of things I wanted to cover. One, uh, if you're new to the show, we, uh, we've got a great Slack community. So we've got over 500 people discussing uh, mergers, acquisitions, IPOs, tech news, really anything that uh, people want to create rooms for. So you can learn more about that at acquired.fm and join. Um, hit us up on Twitter, at uh, uh, acquiredfm. And uh, we are super lucky to have uh, Silicon Valley Bank sponsoring this episode. So before we dive into it, I want to tell you a little bit about SVB. So SVB, for more than 30 years, has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. They provide targeted financial services and expertise through their offices in innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, Silicon Valley Bank helps address the unique needs of innovators. You can learn more at svb.com. And uh, I just wanted to say real quick, they have unbelievable customer service. I've had, you know, I'd say countless, but I think I can count. I think it's been three examples where um, in the last couple of years... I've uh, I've had something come up. I've emailed SVB, and uh, we got uh, everything resolved immediately. And uh, and actually, they are the uh, the bank of uh, of acquired. So if you are at a stage where you're looking for um, looking for a bank, or uh, will be considering one in the future, I couldn't recommend them more. David, can you uh, introduce us to our guest today? Yeah. So as Ben mentioned, we are covering the Starbucks, the landmark Starbucks IPO today. And we are lucky to be joined by Dan Levitan, who is the managing partner and co-founder, along with the soon-to-be former and original CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, of the consumer-only venture capital firm, Mavron. And Dan and Howard started Mavron in 1998. Since then, Dan has invested and served on the boards of many successful companies, including Zulily, Trupanion, Potbelly, and Drugstore.com. Uh, Dan and Mavron are great early stage VC investors and investors both in PSL, uh, where Ben works, um, and co-investors with many of the companies I work with at Madrona and really delightful folks to work with. But today we're actually going to be talking about Dan's days before Mavron, uh, when he was an investment banker in New York at a firm called Wartime Schroeder and Company. And he met a crazy entrepreneur from Seattle who was a head of a coffee company that was named after a character in Moby Dick. And Dan would go on to serve as that coffee company's lead investment banker on their IPO. And that's the story we're here to tell today. So thank you, Dan, for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. 
Yeah, yeah. For for acquired listeners out there, we've had founders, we've had uh, M and A professionals, we've had journalists, uh, we've even had some some executives at, at companies recently acquired on the show. But we've never had a chance to analyze an IPO before from the perspective of the investment banker that that actually took them public and did the deal. So I'm um, super excited to have a, a first here on Acquired today. And uh, actually, it's also also worth noting the date works out pretty well because. Uh, Right now happens to be the uh, the twenty fifth anniversary of Starbucks going public. Actually, June twenty sixth is the twenty fifth anniversary. <laughs> is is the twenty fifth uh, the year of the twenty fifth anniversary? But it is also uh, Howard Schultz's last month on the job before he retires. True. He's on to his next play. So with that, let's dive in. I'm going to quickly relate the origins of Starbucks because I think it's actually something probably definitely many of our listeners, but most people don't know. And then we're going to dive into the IPO with Dan. But the original Starbucks company, not the Starbucks coffee company, but the original Starbucks was founded in Seattle in 1971 by three friends, Jerry Baldwin, Zev Siegel, and Gordon Bowker, who had met in San Francisco as students at the University of San Francisco. And they had become acquaintances of the legendary Berkeley, California coffee roasting entrepreneur, Alfred Pete. Folks might know Pete's Coffee. And the three friends had become sort of disciples uh, of Alfred's. And after college, they moved up to Seattle and uh, they wanted to get into coffee roasting themselves. So they started a company, decided to name it after Starbucks from Moby Dick, and uh, they set up shop in, in Seattle. Um, but they were just a roaster. They, they roasted and they beans and they sold beans. They did not brew coffee. Um, and it becomes a nice, small local business in Seattle. And then we fast forward 10 years to the early 1980s. And David, it's, it's important to know they didn't brew coffee. And that's not just because they were drawing some hard line in the sand, like like you could see today of like, we're not going to be like that, you know, every other street corner that you see that has a coffee shop on it where people are brewing coffee and sitting there and drinking. Uh, many of our listeners are familiar with the idea of but like that didn't exist. Yeah, that's right. That w- that was a thing that Starbucks would later kind of create. They didn't brew coffee because nobody brewed coffee. <laughs> uh, that was what you did at home with your Folgers or your um, beans that you bought from Starbucks or somewhere similar. So we fast forward 10 years to the early 1980s when a young Howard Schultz, who had been a uh, in a earlier life, a, a salesman for uh, the Xerox Corporation, sales executive, um, he was working as the general manager of a Swedish company named Hammerplast that made coffee machines. And he heard about these guys out in Starbucks, heard they roasted good coffee, um, and he went out to see them. And he was actually really impressed. And he was so impressed that he spoke to them and, and sort of begged joining the company and he got a job. And so he became the director of marketing for, for Starbucks. And this was in 1982. So Howard is director of marketing, working for these three founders. Uh, and he goes on a buying trip to Milan, Italy, and he notices something different about Milan versus the streets of Seattle or any other American city. And that's that there are these coffee bars everywhere throughout the city and they serve coffee and um, people go and they, they, they meet there and they hang out there and they, they're not just places to buy beans or, or buy coffee to take away. It's actually a, a place where you sit and you talk to people. And so he, he's really taken by this idea. He comes back to Seattle and he tries to persuade the original Starbucks founders um, that this is something that they should start doing in Seattle, start doing themselves, open up uh, cafes in the city. 
but the founders, they, they, they actually, uh, they actually have something else going on at the time. And that's that their original mentor, uh, Alfred Pete is, is retiring down in San Francisco and he wants to sell, uh, his business to them and, uh, to the, to the three founders, his disciples. And, um, so they say, you know, Howard, that that's nice. You know, if you want to do that, why don't you go do that yourself? We're actually, we're going to, we're in the midst of buying Pete's and we're going to move back to San Francisco and we're going to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that is, it's hilarious to think about like, yeah, you know, we've got Starbucks like it's today, given where both companies are like, oh yeah, we, we've got Starbucks, but like, nah, we're not going to do the whole coffee shop thing. We're going to go do Pete's. Yeah. <laughs> Fate is, uh, and, and truth is, is stranger than fiction sometimes. <laughs> So Howard, Howard actually leaves the original Starbucks in 1985 and he starts a new company, um, kind of pursuing his, his dream of what he saw in Italy of, of cafe, uh, cafe shops that serve coffee and serve as meeting places in cities. And he starts a new company, calls it Il Giornale, uh, and models it after his Italian experience. So he operates this company for a couple of years, grows it in Seattle, uh, has, has a fair amount of success. Uh, and then in 1987, two years later, he approaches the Starbucks founders again. At, at this point, you know, they, they're focused on Pete's uh, and, and still in roasting down in, in San Francisco. Um, and he offers to buy the Seattle retail locations uh, that are still called Starbucks from them. And uh, he does. And they agree to sell it to him for $3.8 million dollars. Schultz buys these Seattle retail outlets, merges them with Il Giornale, and rechristens the company, the Starbucks Coffee Company, and thus. So, so David, did did he have the three point eight million liquid to be able to to make that purchase? Uh, Dan's over here shaking his head. <laughs> yes. So this is where I wanted to bring Dan into the story. How did this transaction, the first one, long before the IPO, come together? Well. I didn't actually know Howard until 1991, and that's a story that I should tell. But the way the transaction came together is Howard at the time was a 30-something, very determined young man. And he went to, I think the number was about 250 people before they said yes to wow. him. And uh, that was for real journaling. Um, and then it was easier to raise the money for Starbucks, but no, he was a poor kid from Canarsie, Brooklyn. So he went around Seattle and met the angel community, which was obviously very much more focused on kind of traditional businesses than tech businesses at the time. And he scraped together the 3.8. In fact, one of the stories that is largely not told was that there was a group of businessmen in Seattle that had seen Starbucks emerge. I think by that time it had seven stores and mm. they weren't sure that this young 30 something year old kid was the right guy to buy Starbucks. <laughs> so, so there was a movement on the side to see if they could put in quote an experienced person <laughs> and they were going to, have an alternative bid for Starbucks, but as has happened many times in the last, you know, 45 years, uh, Howard prevailed and <laughs> was able to line everybody up and buy the company. And I think Starbucks coffee company started with 11 stores in 1987. Wow. Which is so funny. Speaking as a quote, young, uh, 
30 something myself these days, I feel like, you know, now that that's old, right? Like it's, you know, <laughs> if you're in your thirties, you, you have gray hair in the tech world. It's, it's the, you know, the 20 somethings that are the, the, the young entrepreneurs right now. Yep. But, you know, they were looking for an experienced retail operator, but obviously he proved them wrong. <laughs> obviously he did. So, so what, um, he, he merged the companies and, uh, the growth was, was pretty incredible. So it was 1987 when the merger happened and, and the Starbucks coffee company was born. Uh, they did 1.2 million in revenue that year. The very next year, 1988, they did 10.2 million in revenue. So almost 10 X in one year. But that was because of the combination. Ah, that was because of the combination. Okay. That makes sense. But still, even then for the next, you know, basically five plus years, they, they, they practically double revenue every year, which in a bricks and mortar retail business is hard. Yeah. And it looks like 89, they had almost 20 million, 90, they had 35, 1991, they were up to 57.6. You know, Dan, how did they do that? I mean, what, what was the driver of the, the, you know, exponential revenue growth for them? Well, Howard was from the very beginning, kind of aware that Starbucks really was in two businesses. Hmm. One business was operating these retail stores, and the other was developing a pipeline of these retail stores. Mm. So from very early on, he focused on hiring ahead of the curve and developing a infrastructure to visit and then ultimately build uh, a whole fleet of stores. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I first saw it, I was really struck uh, by the cauldron of consumer passion that people had around Starbucks. And he kind of knew that. And so his whole mindset was, I'm going to build a company that's going to be the development co mm. of Starbucks. And and was um, was it sort of like a Bezos-type mindset of every dollar that comes in, we're going to aggressively reinvest in, in new store growth? Or how did he, um, how did they so quickly open so many new stores? Well, he raised a lot of equity and, you know, that was the problem then of retail businesses like that, that mm. they required a lot of equity. And what, what's funny now by, by current standards, um, he did raise a lot of equity, uh, back in, in those days. Um, he raised almost, uh, over $30 million, uh, in equity before going public, which was a lot, but now <laughs> looking at the, the tech companies that, that Mavron and Madrona and the like fund, um, you know, that's, that's like a, you know, maybe your series A and your series B. <laughs> yeah. No, the scale has changed dramatically. I think Starbucks raised about 250 or 300 million in equity in total before it kind of flipped around and the cash flow generation of the existing store base was greater than the incremental amount of cash required to build new stores. Uh -huh. And that's including the IPO. That's including the IPO. Wow. But uh, no, Howard, I, I would say it was very, very different than Bezos. At the start, one of Howard's key constituencies was his employees. And that came from Howard's background with his dad and the fact that his dad didn't have health insurance. And so as a result of that, Howard kind of was fortunate enough to have a business model where he invested in his people mm -hmm. and his people nurtured relationships with customers. And so, yes, there was a ton of money invested in the new stores, but things like healthcare for 
they called it beanstalk back then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and this was amazing. I mean, every employee in the company, you know, from barista on up, part-time baristas on up, uh, not only got health insurance, but also got, got stock options, got, got equity in the company. And one free pound of coffee per week. <laughs> Still happens today. <laughs> it, is, it is really incredible that they've managed to preserve that at scale. I mean, when they announced things, I think it was two, maybe three years ago, but announcing the program for all partners, Starbucks doesn't refer to them as baristas, but every employee is a partner, um, for all partners to be able to uh, to attend an online university. And I, I can't remember quite who they, they partnered with. ASU. ASU. And opening that up to um, say, you know what, like for all of our partners, we're, we're here for your continued growth and education and we're going to you know continue to reinvest in you. Uh, that's one thing that's really nice to say and very possible, not at scale. And it's just incredible at the scale that they're doing it to keep it up. Particularly when companies go through traumatic periods where everyone questions, what are the values of the company? Which which Starbucks had, right? I mean, I don't want to jump way ahead too much, but so Starbucks hasn't always been the absolute behemoth that, that we know it today. 100%. I think that is the story of resiliency, tenacity, whether or not it's Apple or Starbucks, these are not straight lines. Or, or Amazon. Uh, you know, from our you know episode with uh, with Tom talking about Amazon, and um, you know, <laughs> after the IPO and during the post internet bubble crash, I mean, you could have bought Amazon for the equivalent of like five bucks a share. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, David, you want to take us through? Yeah. Uh... Dan, I wanted to bring you in here. So you know, the the company's growing incredibly fast leading up to the IPO for any any company tech or otherwise so so you met you met howard in in 1991 how did you you know in new york hear about what was going on out here in seattle and how did you meet howard and and this relationship start that would lead to lead to so many things over the years well as it turned out i was working in our los angeles office at the time and uh, a partner of mine from New York called up and said, there's this coffee company and we have to go visit it in Seattle. And I said, coffee, you know, what are you talking about? How could that be a fast growth business? Because in those days, Folgers and Maxwell house and those branded cans of coffee Just terrible. was a, uh, was a declining business. And this guy named Bob Israel said to me, Dan, trust me, let's go to Seattle. And I kept struggling to try and understand how this could be a growth business. When I first heard him talk about it, the only frame of reference I had for coffee retailers was those Greek coffee shops on the corner in Manhattan um, that served those blue and white cups of coffee. And uh, anyhow, I came up to Seattle, and I will never forget the time. It was an August day in 1991. And I took a cab in from SeaTac. And by the way, everyone in the audience might be puzzled as to, you know, how could you not check out a company? There was no internet then. <laughs> so unless you knew people. You had people to literally come to Seattle. Exactly. And unless you knew people in Seattle, it was super hard to experience the visual or the what Starbucks was. So you literally had to come to Seattle at the time, I think they were in Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver. But anyhow, I remember getting in the taxi vividly from SeaTac and uh, taking a ride to the hotel and me asking the guy, I hear there's a lot of coffee in this town. 
which coffee shop do you go to? And he said, oh, there's a ton of coffee in this town. And probably versus today, there's one twentieth of the number of <laughs> coffee stores. Um, but he says, there's a lot of options, but I always go to Starbucks and it's the best. And then I check into the hotel and before I go upstairs to my room, I ask the woman behind the counter, I got to get a cup of coffee tomorrow. Where do you recommend? And she said, oh, there's lots of places, but I always go to Starbucks and here's, here's the spot. So uh, I woke up the next morning and I always had a principle that I would never not visit the company's stores that I was calling on. So they sent me to the kiosk in city center that's still there over on uh, Fifth Avenue. Just a kiosk, not the full store experience. It was a kiosk because there was no store near the hotel. Huh. They were so underpenetrated versus now. And so I sat there for about 45 minutes and people were lining up for this coffee. And I was like, you know, why is this coffee so great? And uh, I wasn't a coffee drinker at the time. And it was the kind of one of the first times I ever had coffee was that day. And so we headed over to Starbucks. And for an hour and a half, Howard just talked nonstop. And he was talking about the business model. He was talking about his people. He was talking about his customers. And this kind of passion that was, you know, completely intoxicating and contagious. But I was an investment banker. And investment bankers have to sell. And if I couldn't talk, I couldn't sell. <laughs> and I was kind of frustrated because... <laughs> At the end of an hour and a half, literally, he looked at his watch and basically he made it clear to me that it was over. He kind of closed up his notebook and he kind of started walking me to the door, basically. <laughs> and I had just been kind of overwhelmed by this incredible experience about that was about passion. But most importantly for me, it was about a guy who understood that his business was more than his shareholders. Hmm. He kind of talked about his customers. And he talked about his people in an incredibly compelling way. And I, I was just really struck by that and hadn't really heard that prioritization of people first, customers second, shareholders third, uh, from anyone. And so there was a long hallway in the Starbucks, the old Starbucks headquarters, which is down near airport way south. And he walked me out and in the middle of the hallway, he stopped abruptly, turned around, and he said, do you know what the problem with investment bankers are? <laughs> Meanwhile, you haven't gotten a word in. Right? I could Where not have begin? gotten a word in. And I, and I said, excuse me? Yeah. And he said, do you know what the problem with investment bankers are? And I had no idea where he was going with this. <laughs> and he said, there are no menches in investment banking. And in 1991, mensch was not a word in the Urban Dictionary. <laughs> just, and, just in the Yiddish Dictionary? Uh, it was only in the Yiddish Dictionary, and that was about not widely circulated yeah. <laughs> in 1991. And so I was like, who is this guy saying this? It was really incredible. But to his credit, he gave me, the investment banker, the keys to getting their business. Well, wait, so was he implying that you were one, or was he implying, like, uh, from there... You had to form some relationships where you could get some data on you. Like, how did that go? Well, so he was implying that he hadn't met one <laughs> as an investment banker and that I had the opportunity. He wasn't convinced <laughs> yet, but he was going to give you a shot. He wasn't convinced at all. And I wasn't convinced that, that I was going to get a shot. But I remember taking a uh, plane back from Seattle back to L.A. 
And in those days, Airphone, it was called oh, uh, yeah. on the planes, uh, was like super expensive. And I spent the whole uh, trip on the Airphone talking to all my colleagues saying I had just discovered this incredible company. Um, but what happened, fast forward, is occasionally came to L.A., and over time, we just started spending more time together. And mm. in those days, it was harder to get references. And he spent a bunch of time mm. with a bunch of different firms and kind of narrowed it down. The whole selection of the investment banker is a whole nother story, but it's not really related to tech. It's related to human psychology. <laughs> um, but I was particularly fortunate that, you know, our firm, uh, as David said, was part of the IPO, which was an incredibly interesting experience. Basically, the beauty contest went on in the end of March, beginning of April of 92. And the markets were particularly slow back then. And when then. you say the beauty contest, what do you mean by that? Over a two-day period, the company invited six investment banks in to, quote, pitch Ah. why they should be part of the IPO. And it was always going to be a small IPO. So it was pretty clear that there were going to be two investment banks, maybe three max. And there was a bunch of different vectors off of which they would make their choice. The chemistry with the people, what the industry specialization was of Mm. the people, what the track records of the investment bank were, the trading history. They sent us this seven or eight page checklist that we had to submit for uh, the answers in advance. When we got there, they would take you through a tour of the roasting facilities. And we didn't know it, but we were being judged as to who was really interested in the roasting facility versus who was really just there to pitch the IPO. So Howard's assistant at the time, a woman named Laura Moy, Laura took us around the roasting plant and she was making notes that she then backfed to Howard about this. Oh, these wow. people are jerks and these people are really interested in what we're doing because they were trying to parse through who had the heart and the passion and the connectivity mm. with the company. And, you know, a few months after this, Howard kind of told me that it, they dinged us because we showed up in a limousine because we had five or six people <laughs> and there were there were no Suburbans back then. So we <laughs> showed up in a limo and that was a negative. Every, everything was being scripted in this beauty contest, which was really interesting. And it was an hour and a half presentation. And it was a, a committee of Howard, the CFO at the time, Oren Smith, and two directors. Mm. And it was those four that were going to make the choices to who to pick between the six possible ones and the two they eventually picked. And the company was quite thoughtful and discerning. Uh, A company like Goldman Sachs was interested in pitching, Mm -hmm. but Goldman kind of said, hey, you know, we'd like you to come to New York and meet all of our senior people, but they can't come to Seattle. So boom, they got dinged. Yep. Because they couldn't bring their senior people. Not no white glove service there. Exactly. Yep. Well, and this was, um, you know, it's it's hard to imagine today, but you know, as we talked about in sort of the 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 intro to the history and facts, um, you know, Starbucks today is like it's 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 a verb, it's a noun, it's it's on every corner, you know, in every city in the entire world. Um, 
but back then this was this was small fry as far as as goldman was concerned right i mean um even the ipo which we'll get into in a sec um you know prices uh prices the ipo priced on june 26th 1992 at a roughly 225 million dollar market cap which which was you know more then than it is today but these were still you know very very early days for the company oh 100 percent. i mean there might have been 80 stores but the uh the visibility of companies was a lot less back then mm-hmm. yep. again you don't have the internet you don't have dedicated news sources about business so it was harder to discover these companies, you know, something like retailroadshow.com, where you can go and see every perspectives, every video of every IPO that didn't exist. Mm. So, you know, the underwriters on Starbucks, the lead underwriters were our firm and Alex Brown. And unless you had accounts there, it was hard to get a prospectus. Huh. And, and so the access to information wasn't what it is today. And part of the reason why the company went public, frankly, was the visibility of going to a bigger platform. And in fact, in the months following the IPO, without getting ahead of ourselves, the comp store growth significantly increased because Hmm. they realized a successful IPO would equate to curiosity amongst customers. Yeah, and yeah. of course, one of the reasons to, to, to IPO, not not always the greatest reason, but um, for the, the visibility hit that you get from it, you know, along with raising the capital and getting liquidity for your shareholders, you certainly get that uh, that buzz for, you know, a few weeks or, or a month around the IPO like we're seeing with, with Snap now. Um, Dan, what do you think the kind of competitive moat around Starbucks is? Like, what is the defensibility? Why, why can't, you know, any mom and pop shop knock them out of business? I think there are probably two competitive moats that have been around Starbucks since the beginning. Uh, the first is Howard. I would say Jeff Bezos is a competitive moat. <laughs> I would say Steve Jobs is a competitive moat. These companies are willed into existence through ups and downs because of the resilience, the grit, the determination, and the ability of these founders. Uh, I think that's super important. And then in terms of Starbucks specifically, I frequently talk about the psychological contract that Starbucks has with its employees mm. and how the strength of that psychological contract manifests itself in the psychological contract between the employees and the customers. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. Starbucks is an incredibly retail-facing, consumer-facing business with 26,000 points of distribution. Wow. And even if you're doing the mobile order and pay, you show up and physically see the barista. I think that certainly Howard thinks the product is much better, but I think if you talk to 100 people, some might say yes, some might say no. Mm -hmm. The real differentiation and how they have withstood the competition is because of the commitment of the people, which then made Starbucks become in customer's mind something bigger than just buying a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And yeah. in the in the annual meeting this week, they talked a little about using their platform and their scale for good. Hmm. And they talked a lot about that, actually. And that's just been a theme that Howard has used for a long time. Well, and this is, um, in just a sec, I'll, we'll wrap up the history and facts with, with the 
IPO itself, and and then and then talk a talk a little bit about Starbucks evolution after that. Um, but I think this is something that's super clear. Going back and reading the S one, which also was super fun because you know it, it came out before the internet, so um, it's uh, you have to do some rooting around online to find it. We'll we'll link to it in the show notes. But Howard, you know, and Dan, you mentioned you know Howard, Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs being moats. You know, I think something that's common to all of them and really comes out reading the S one is how deeply Howard understood and the company understood customer loyalty. Um, you know, especially it it seems obvious, but like for, you know, thinking back to when they started Starbucks uh, or when Howard started El Gio and um, you know, the idea that you would go and buy your coffee and, and drink it either to take away or drink at a store in a city, uh, that was just something nobody had ever thought of. It was just, you, you made it at home, but the creating this, this place and this experience where people are going to come back again and again, that just enables, that's what enables the business to work, enables them to invest money in opening the store, invest money in marketing, because when you acquire that customer, they're going to be coming back again and again and again for their lifetime. Yeah. And I remember the research at the time of the IPO was that the average engaged Starbucks customer came 18 times a month. <laughs> it's accurate for me. Yeah. I mean, that compares favorably with like, you know, apps <laughs> today with like Facebook. <laughs> uh, exactly. But I think the other thing I would say is if you know you have 18 opportunities to mm. exceed your customer's expectations or flub it, everything matters. And so your attention to detail and your earn it every day attitude becomes present. I'd like to go back before we leave the IPO, just one anecdote. So in an IPO, and it's still remarkably similar today, the management of the company goes around the country and depending upon the size of the IPO, perhaps the world, and pitches to investors. And they do it in two formats. One is group breakfasts and lunches, and the other is one-on-ones. And the one-on-ones are for the biggest investors, Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, Capital Research. And so in the Starbucks IPO, there were 60 one-on-one schedules over a two-week period. And it was eight or nine days in the United States and a few days in London, Paris, and Geneva. That is a lot of meetings in a short period of time. It was a lot of meetings. 60 one-on-ones. And so Howard said to me before, right as we were starting, he said, how many of the 60 do you think I'm going to get? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, of the 60 meetings that we're going to have one-on-one, how many do you think we'll, we'll convert to orders? And at that time, I had probably done 10 IPOs. And, you know, I said 80 or 90%. And he said, I'm going to get 60. And I said, Howard, Not 60%, 100% get all 60. Exactly. And I said, you know, Howard, there's lots of reasons why people don't invest, including the fact that the IPO is so popular that they might not want to, to, they might not get enough stock to be meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. So don't hold yourself accountable to 100% hit ratio. And he said, I'm going to get 100%. And this this is only raising $25 million, right? No, they raised 40-something million. Part of the offering was a secondary. I see. Not a good sale by <laughs> those. <laughs> Still, uh, no. not a good amount of money, right? Like, you, there, there's just not that many shares to go around. Uh, definitely true, but 
everything was smaller back then. So 40 was not a necessarily small IPO in 1992. I see. But um, as it turns out, he got 59 of the 60. <laughs> oh. I'm sure it kills him to this day. Well, no, the story gets better. <laughs> <laughs> there was a guy named Mickey Strauss. And Mickey Strauss was at a firm called Weiss Peck and Greer. Uh, wonderful man, may he rest in peace. And Mickey uh, decided not to buy it at Weiss Peck and Greer. Within nine months after the IPO, who was the largest shareholder of Starbucks? Weiss Peck and Greer. <laughs> and the lesson for your entrepreneurs out there is what goes around can come around. <laughs> and Howard was so frustrated that Mickey Strauss didn't buy on the IPO, but he then became, in the public markets, the biggest buyer. So the lesson for the venture capitalists is if you really want to invest in a company, you should turn them down the first time because then the entrepreneur is going to want to get you the second time. <laughs> that's right. Earn that, earn that right in the A round. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's such a great story. So mm. we go around the world and we're, it's finally time to price. And the offering was oversubscribed eight or 10 times, as I remember. And we had filed at 14 to $16 a share. And during- It was the, literally like 10 times more interest in the IPO than there was room? Correct. Wow. Is that, what's normal? Like, Well, in Snap and some of these others, it's a lot more. Okay. Uh, you know, at Zulily, I think we had 20 times interest. Hmm. Um, because what ends up happening is if these things get hot, then everyone acts like they really want it, but maybe they don't really want it for the long term. They mm. want it just for the flip. And so it's very hard to gauge real demand versus uh, flipper demand. Mm -hmm. But um, what ended up happening at the pricing was the comps went down 30% if there were comps between the time we filed and the time that uh, the company priced. And by the way, that was so different than you couldn't file confidentially. So huh. when we filed, everyone saw our filing. And it was super bad because if you couldn't complete an IPO, then everyone knew that you had filed and you couldn't get it done. And that was quite a taint. Yeah. But in terms of the pricing, the deal's way oversubscribed and the capital markets guys recommended that we price the deal at $16 a share, high end of the range. And Howard said, no, we have to price it at 17 <laughs> And the capital markets guys from both firms recommend we price it at 16. And so we had this very awkward phone call <laughs> where these wise guys who somehow couldn't really tell you why it was 16, but they felt that it was 16. They kept saying it had to be 16. And Howard kept saying it had to be 70. And it was a difficult spot for me because as the investment banker who's in corporate finance and kind of representing the client, I was kind of pulled toward Howard, yet the colleagues in my firm were saying 16, 16, 16. Howard relentlessly prevailed and we priced the deal at 17. And ultimately the stock traded to 2021 20, that day. Huh. And kind of the rest is history. It's gone up 183 times since then. <laughs> So you priced it at 17, um, which was roughly a $225 million market cap. Um, and, uh, and, and then today, 
Starbucks has a $83 billion market cap. So that's about a 18,000% return since then. So the selling shareholders in the IPO probably should have held on to those shares. Yeah. yeah. But like every other early company, they might have had a 5 or a 10x at the offering. And right. so, you know, for the Apples, the Amazons, the Starbucks, those turn out to be incredibly bad sales. But you have to have patience and tenacity, and you can't be thinking of yourself as a as a trader. Yeah, and and Dan, before we move on from this, um, what are the implications of pricing at sixteen versus seventeen, both for the company, for the people buying those shares, for the investment bank? Like, why why was that a contentious issue? Well, the pricing of an IPO is a very complicated thing because you have multiple constituencies. Mm-hmm. For the company, clearly. They would have gotten more money. At, they did get more money at 17. And in theory, for the flippers, uh, they would get less money the higher you price. Mm-hmm. And so I think from the very beginning, the investment bankers are trying to find what a nice bump is, but not an incredibly overwhelming bump because mm-hmm. it feels like you've left too much money on the table. Yet, if you don't kind of have it be if it breaks the IPO price, then it becomes a negative story. Right. <laughs> it's damaged goods. Exactly. And one of the things that I always used to counsel public company CEOs is don't let yourself or your people be judged by whether or not the stock today goes up or down. It's you're building a company. And in the long term, they will correlate. But in the short term, they can frequently widely diverge. Yeah. I, w- I want to get into uh, this sort of a... Uh, maybe maybe a one-off section uh, if uh, you guys are are willing to experiment here. Yeah, we we introduced on the Snap IPO uh, a new section narratives, but one I think that doesn't make total sense and would be really hard given how long ago the hard to do the research given uh, how long ago the Starbucks IPO happened. Um, the narrative section that we're going to do going forward is what the company's narrative is that they're trying to tell during the IPO process and what the narrative is in the press and the market around it. But what I think is really interesting, especially for listeners of this show, is that there has been a narrative that's emerged over the last 10 to 15 years around Starbucks. Um, and that's it's a coffee company. It's a, it's a retail company. It's, it's a real estate company, but it's also a technology company. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, especially for you, Dan, uh, being a technology venture capitalist and a consumer only technology venture capitalist and founding Mavron with Howard, how, how has Howard's thinking and the company's thinking evolved from those days when it was, you know, it was, uh, there was no internet. (laughs) You could only find out about Starbucks if you saw them on the street corner to the days today when, um, you know, you can request your usual mobile order you know, on your phone or, or from Alexa and then pick it up in the, in the building of your lobby or have it delivered to you. Yeah, it's changed a lot. In 1998, when we started Mavron, the whole thought was, holy cow, technology is integrating into consumers' lives in unprecedented ways. So how will it change the business models of these companies? And I think in 1998, a company like Starbucks, or even in 2008, most companies that were in the retail business thought of themselves as using IT as a way to manage their business, but not really as a way to hmm. attract customers. 
And I would say in the last 10 years, with the advent of the web and the power of social media, you saw the eye-opening opportunity that social media can drive traffic into stores. And mm-hmm. I would say that was the first aha that a lot of companies had. And Starbucks maybe was a little more advanced because with Mavron and Howard was on the board of uh, eBay. So I think he came from that regular retail world, but he was exposed to, consciously exposed to technology perhaps before other uh, traditional retail companies. And I think now I find it kind of somewhat humorous that people refer to Starbucks as a technology company. (laughs) I would say it's a incredibly powerful consumer company that's utilizing technology to integrate into customers' lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, I think it's, it's interesting, a- though. You're, you're right. It, it, is a, it is a consumer company. But, um, you know, you mentioned JCPenney. You mentioned Sears. You know, these were its peers for a long time that haven't evolved. <laughs> you know, obviously, being, you know, co-founding Mavron with you, being on the eBay board, uh, Howard was um, for a while on the on the Square board. I, I, I guess the the question is, like, what along the way do you think were, were some of those those key moments when Starbucks built the that capability uh, and and that part of that transformation into being a technology company when when some of its peers you know didn't? Well, uh, there was a guy named Chris Brizzo who was the first social media person at Starbucks, and hmm. uh, he's now in marketing at EA. But anyhow, Chris was kind of before his time at Starbucks and just kept pounding on the opportunity that social media had to be an awareness vehicle and a traffic driver. He didn't have much budget, but he kind of relentlessly kept on it. And I think Howard started seeing that through social media, they could literally send people into the stores. And if you think about retail, one of the key metrics that every investor looks at is same store sales. And in fact, I was privileged enough to know a guy named Jerry Gallagher, may you rest in peace, who was the inventor of same store sales. And <laughs> I asked him to join the potbelly board with me, which he did. But anyhow, the concept of same store sale was, uh, I think, became a valuation driver for these retail companies. So at the beginning, the first aha was if technology and social media could drive traffic and incremental traffic into the stores, then that was worth investing in. But as recently as five years ago, many traditional food and other retailers really had a hard time investing in technology because they couldn't really see the return. They felt it was cool to be on social media, but they didn't want to spend the money. Yeah, I think that's a good tech trend to extrapolate here is is the shift from technology as a cost center in the the IT spend to a revenue driver and uh, a a core part of the product organization and the driver of part of the innovation of the company. And I mean, we look at some of the things that that have happened with Starbucks. They've had a lot of experiments with other technology company partnerships and, and bringing things in that, um, that weren't huge. I mean, there was like that 2012 square deal, they had that early partnership in the mid 2000s with uh, with Apple and iTunes and co-advertising there. And then they still have, I think, like the song of the week and the app of the week with the free download card in the stores. And and the thing that ended up really like working in, in, in my mind is 
they have incredible loyalty due to their app. I mean, or manifested in their app. They were one of the first to to pioneer putting those gift cards uh, in the app. And now I don't think I've actually used cash or a credit card at a Starbucks to buy anything other than reloading my card so I can get my my uh, my stars. <laughs> yeah, like they, they, they've always been pioneers in, in loyalty and then using um, technology as a lever to strengthen the 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 loyalty program. I, I think in, in my mind, at least that's that's the thing that they've um, they've really exemplified the best in, in, in using technology to have any retailer on Earth. Yeah, um, it's funny that you say that because 12 years ago, Madrona and us invested in a company that had order ahead. <laughs> and What company was that? And it went flop. Uh, it, I've forgotten the name of it. I kind yeah. of blot out. <laughs> but we literally lost $10 million investing in a business that had order off your cell phone. And at the time, we had a test going with five or six Starbucks, and they didn't think it was relevant. <laughs> and But the complication of understanding this stuff is they didn't think it was relevant, partly because the smartphone proliferation wasn't as mm. uh, wide as it is now, obviously. Mm -hmm. And the feature set wasn't as compelling as it was. So I think the stored value component Mm -hmm. coupled with the order ahead became uh, kind of a compelling feature set. And now I would argue that the suite of products that Starbucks has in mobile order and pay is being clamored for by all sorts of other yeah. restaurant and retail yeah. companies. When I think it's, um, <laughs> I feel like we're, uh, maybe we can mark the official transition into tech themes on the show at this point. <laughs> we're, we're sort of in it, but um you know, something that we've talked about a lot on this show and I'm just such a huge believer in, in technology is it's a, it has to be in service of a superior customer experience and just doing technology, just doing tech or just doing mobile ordering for the technology aspects isn't going to work. And this is what I think Starbucks has executed so well on in the last few years is, you know, doing order ahead in the app with my stored value, like it makes the experience better because I get my coffee faster, but I still interact with the people there and, and my name's still written on the coffee and it's, and it's wonderful. It's just, I don't have to wait in line. And so it's better as opposed to forcing you to jump through technology hoops just for the sake of jumping through technology hoops. Yeah. And where I've had the most luck working with technology companies is companies that have a great compelling product but can put themselves in the shoes of the retailer or the consumer company and try to understand what that customer experience is, mm -hmm. as opposed to just kind of selling it based upon, you know, where we've had... Speeds and speeds, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Where we've had no luck is where tech companies think that, well, you know, these retailers just don't get it. Uh, they don't understand the big idea. And it's that alchemy of building cutting-edge technology that then can be adopted, relevant, and embraced by these companies who are responsible for nurturing the relationships with their customers. Great point. Well, before we go whole hog into, uh, into tech themes here, it's worth stopping for, for a moment in, uh, in our what would have happened otherwise uh, section. And, you know, we, we've talked about in, in at least the before the secondary in that initial IPO, they raised uh, $25 million. Did Starbucks ever consider doing that on the private markets like we see a lot of today? I mean, obviously, they needed 
uh, a capital infusion to continue opening the stores at the rate that they were doing that. But I guess the the two possibilities are, what if they grew more slowly? Would, would Starbucks be the way it is today? And then two, could they have raised that money in a different way? What if they had grown more slowly? They probably wouldn't have the domination that they have. Unlike a Amazon, Starbucks kind of won market by market. And so it was super important for them in their mind to get to markets quickly and eventually build the resources where they could go into a market and kind of own it. And they did that in a number of different ways. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was privileged enough to work with Starbucks and buying a company called the Coffee Connection in Boston. And it was a venture funded company by a guy named George Howell. And uh, it was funded by uh, a bunch of VCs. And we basically told them, you know, we're coming to Boston. We're going to either steamroll you down or you could sell us, sell to us. And they did. And same thing in London, where Scott Svensson from Mod Pizza sold uh, what he called the Seattle Coffee Company to Starbucks, which served as the footprint for Starbucks in those stores. So it's in Howard's DNA that growth, growth, growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think part of that is to give back to the partners and create opportunities. So- I don't think in the early days uh, there was much of a chance that, you know, he was going to slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had asked it as a two-part question. I'm sorry I lost this. Yeah, part. part being raised in the private markets. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't think many of your listeners can comprehend the vastness of what's happened <laughs> and the changes in the capital <laughs> markets over the past 25 years. Yeah, there were no uh, – there was no – not even late stage, quote unquote, there were there, but there were especially no, well, there probably weren't even very many hedge funds, period, but there certainly weren't any of them that were investing in private companies. Right. There were a few crossover funds, but the amount of capital doing that was small. Mm. And so Starbucks did a $20 million raise in December of 91. And that was a big raise. And they used DLJ as an agent for it. So the fact that you have 180 multi-billion dollar or more private companies mm-hmm. uh, today, that's probably 178 more than there were in 1992. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the they didn't have access to the capital that, that private companies have today, period, full there stop. There you go. Well, that's a great lead into uh, to, to going hard in tech themes here. It's shocking to think of the lack of information and the uh, significantly fewer options available to anyone, to companies, to investment bankers, to venture capitalists in those days. And we see very different companies and very different market dynamics falling out because of, well, the internet. Yeah, which uh, is related to one. um, I I had some fun thinking about this and uh, uh, you guys and, and listeners might think I'm just, you know, going off into, into crazy town here, but, but curious what you think. Um, you know, I think it's so cool that in the coffee industry, there's this concept of like, of, of waves, right? Like everybody talks about third wave coffee. Um, and, uh, and for, for listeners that aren't steeped quote unquote in, in coffee culture, um, the, uh, the the first wave of coffee was was the Folgers and the Maxwell House that we talked about in the beginning of the show. The making your coffee at home, you know, <laughs> I um, perhaps unlike many of our listeners, am uh, uh, am 
old enough, perhaps dating myself a little bit. And I, you know, remember, uh, growing up, my parents having the TV on in the morning and hearing the, you know, the jingles, like the best part of waking up, you know, is folders in your cup and the good to the last drop Maxwell house. It was never true. (laughs) It was never true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but then Starbucks really was like the, that was the second wave. And that was the first time that this sort of orthogonal business model, um, had emerged in, in coffee, which was this idea of, you know, coffee as an experience, not, not just as a beverage. And, uh, Starbucks obviously rode that huge wave into becoming orders of magnitude bigger than folders in Maxwell house ever were, you know, and then today you have the, the third wave coffee, which is the sort of disaggregated, you know, the, the artisanal brew, uh, small batch, you know, roasting and brewing local coffee shops. But I think there's this great analogy between all of that to the tech industry and that the first wave being, you know, like <laughs> to the tech industry and the internet, the first wave being AOL, right? Like everybody remembers the jingle and like, it wasn't nearly as good as <laughs> it was supposed to be. <laughs> and, and the second wave being, you know, the truly compelling version of AOL being Facebook and, and social. Um, and we talked about social media earlier and I think of, you know, Starbucks being the social place, Facebook being the social place, the insight being that mm. once you bring human interaction into, into a, you know, a, a market, you can completely transform it. And then you have the third wave today of the uh, further disaggregation of everything happening on Facebook that, of course, Facebook is a big part of with the messengers and WhatsApp and Snapchat and Instagram um, taking the photos, but basically, you know, creating through through tech, through data, but also through humans, you know, matching the best of each individual element for you, personalizing it to to what you're doing. So. So would you would you summarize that as first wave being one size fits all but bad, yep. second wave being one size fits all but good, and with your friends, being with your friends, yeah, and then the third wave being, um, you know, not one size fits all, truly this broken up small group, small batch, highly targeted, highly personalized experiences. That would be a summary of my coffee drug induced fever dream. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I guess where I would go is. We've been spending a lot of time at Mavron thinking about voice hmm. and how voice facilitates impulse. And I think if you kind of step back, kind of version one was Amazon in 95, 96, where you had to intentionally go and it was hard. And in many ways, the digital ordering experience has gotten better. On a, It's become more mobile, but mobile is only one step toward impulse. And we were fortunate enough to be involved from the very beginning at Zulily, which was another kind of impulse experience, somewhat of an intersection between QVC and traditional e-commerce. And the internet, yeah. I think voice is the next frontier. Part of that is obviously artificial intelligence. But uh, at the Starbucks annual meeting this week, they uh, previewed, you get into your Ford car and you order your latte from there and you pick it up on the way to oh, work. Awesome. And so I think you're going to see voice on-ramps adopted within e-commerce situations that are going to change the way and how we buy. And it seems like such an exciting time to do that, but you have to do it in a way that reinforces kind of the brand and the buying experience. Dan, I think that's super insightful. I think that's totally right. And I think that... Um you know, I have the Starbucks app on my phone. I pull it out when I get to the register. Um, I 
often don't think it's worth it to pull my phone out when my hands are cold in the Seattle weather and like punch in the order. <laughs> but if there were, and I know this is a, a problem on Apple's side, not not Starbucks side, but if I could pull out Siri and say, you know, uh, three minutes almond milk latte, Starbucks third and Madison, and it was just there, I think that's the uh, that's when you break out of that uncanny valley and it actually slots right into your life in a convenient way. Yeah. And I think it comes back to what we were talking about a minute ago of, um, you know, everything has to be in service of creating a superior customer experience. And part of a superior customer experience is, is not taking <laughs> your phone out when, uh, in your hand and, and pushing the button when, uh, when it's cold out. Yep. Yep. All right. On to, uh, to grading the, the IPO. So the way that we do this, um, and, and, uh, Dan smiling guests can participate or not. Um, but would love to get your commentary is, uh, as we started with acquisitions, we would grade based on, was that a good idea for the acquirer to acquire the acquiree? Like, did that, was that a gigantic money pit for them or did they actually manage to turn that into a one plus one equals three? And then as we shifted over to IPOs, the way that we think about it is, well, what did that event enable that company to do? Both uh, on all three of the pillars that I mentioned earlier of you know notoriety um, and and uh, and brand for the company, um, g- giving liquidity to those early investors, and uh, and primarily what did they do with that capital infusion? And I think before before diving into it, it's it's worth recapping a little bit that you know Dan, you made that great point that the DNA of the company and of Howard was growth. And they needed to open more stores. They needed to go into more markets. And uh, the question that's been kind of like hanging in the back of my head is, were they in a highly competitive landscape? Like, did they need to rush into markets and beat out competitors because there were other sort of copycats coming in and, and starting these coffee chains that were getting brand loyal? Or could they have afforded to bide their time a little bit more and just reinvest their profits? The Starbucks IPO, even back then, when you had a successful IPO in a particular sector, it drew a lot of copycatters. Mm-hmm. So they went public in June of 92. By the fall of 92, there was a, a couple of companies that were rolling up different existing uh, coffee chains, Gloria Jeans, and I forget the other ones, but many of them have gone by the wayside, but they were trying to put mass together. Mm-hmm. And what they didn't realize is that you know, they really weren't focused on execution. They were focused on creating something that was IPOable, <laughs> um, but not exceeding customers' expectations every day. Mm-hmm. But I would think that part of the reason Starbucks is where it is today is that Howard was impatient and always wanted to grow. And as a result of that, he got to markets quicker than he might otherwise. And he, uh, you know, you talked about Pete's. I haven't seen the numbers for Starbucks San Francisco, but I would say that whether or not it's Blue Bottle or Pete's. uh, Or Phil's. Excuse me? Or Phil's. Or Phil's. The fact that they didn't have the dominant position the way they have it in Seattle or L.A. uh, enabled these smaller competitors to pop up. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember making my first investment in Starbucks was in that December 1991 round and you saw this cauldron of consumer passion in a market by market basis and you really asked yourself is the east coast any different is Mm -hmm. atlanta any different and if you came to the conclusion no then it's okay so how quickly can you yeah it's interesting as you were 
talking there, I was, um, <laughs> at first, because you mentioned, you know, when a company would IPO back in those days, you know, it would attract copycats. And it reminded me of something Brad Stone said on our, um, on our episode about the Uber and Didi merger, that there are folks in, in, oh, in yeah. China, especially, but all over the world that are just reading TechCrunch. And as companies get, you know, raise their first round of venture funding, they're, they're copying themselves. So funny how the acceleration has happened. Um, but yeah, it also made me, you know, I think one of the dominant themes of the IPO and lessons from it and from Starbucks and Howard is, is that focus, like you just said, Dan, on, um, you know, exceeding your customers' expectations at every opportunity, you know, and I just look at companies today that are doing that well versus ones who aren't. And again, you know, thinking back to the Uber Didi episode and, and all the, even since that episode, all the challenges that have come out about that company and, you know, not to, not to pile on the Uber has done many, many amazing things, but man, it just, it's really come out in the culture that like the culture there is not about delighting your customer <laughs> and exceeding their expectations. And I just think about the competitive bloodbath that we saw in that episode in China and that is playing out all over the world and, um, how Starbucks was able to avoid that even as the copycats popped up by, by a growing fast, but also b just keeping that core mission of, of always exceeding the customer's expectations. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, it starts by just a, a fundamental belief that at these 26,000 points of distribution, everything matters and you've got to provide training and you've got to invest in your people such that uh, they feel good about themselves and therefore they feel good about the brand. I mean, they're the brand ambassadors. And in many ways, I would argue that Starbucks is one of the most difficult daily execution. You know, they have 90 million customers coming through their stores every week. 90 million. Wow. Every week. Wow. And so, and they're so visible that every opportunity to screw it up is an opportunity for social media to amplify that mm -hmm. message. And, um, I kind of frequently talk to our Maverick companies about, relatively speaking, how easy their task is to exceed customer expectations. Because hmm. if you're, you have your own uh, distribution, uh, then you just really need a customer service infrastructure that gets what you're trying to do and what the brand says and speaks for. And uh, it's just much easier. Um, and I think that's one of the masteries of Starbucks. But I look at Apple as an example, and I look at the Apple stores. And I don't know how you guys feel, but, you know, I knew 15 years ago that Apple was onto something when my 70-year-old uh, mother-in-law at the time told me how she's making reservations at the Apple store and you know, she just loves it and <laughs> she's learning. So I think, you know, it's not a surprise to see Amazon first with the bookstore and then eventually go um, because, again, uh, let's take it full circle. Technology for itself is not the issue. Technology for serving customer needs, to me, becomes incredibly powerful and sticky and enduring. Yeah, well said. Completely agreed. So I'll, I will stop dancing around it and say that, that uh, yes, very, very much well said. Uh, obviously, I'm biased. I'm sitting in the room here with Dan, um, but we've gone over this, this, uh, this full analysis, and I'm going to give this an A. You know, I think uh, for the branding event reason, um, 
that that enabled it enabled them to go into markets and and really like that worked right like when they spread to these new markets they were they were suddenly national news and people understood this it wasn't this little coffee chain in seattle and on the west coast it was it was a, a, a an ipo that people knew about and they had a pedigree and they could they could move to these new markets with that and then also the and then i'm splitting the what they did with the capital into idea and execution um, the idea to, uh, of what to do with it to, to continue this, this, um, you know, frenzy of, of opening new stores the right way in, in new markets and moving in was both the, the right thing to do with that capital and really well executed. I mean, when you look at that, that, well, when you hear your stories, Dan, of, you know, 59 out of 60 said yes and, um, pricing it at, at 17, not 16 and, and still getting that little pop, not a ridiculous one, but a, a good one. And, you know, I was just pulling up, um, um, the, uh, the history of the, the stock price. Like there was no, in, you know, I'm just looking at these first few years because I think that's the relevant part. There was no like, oh crap moment. I mean, there was no, the bottom didn't seem to have fallen out, fallen out on it. It was, it was like, it went to the public markets with a, true to uh, you know true to the company yeah. value and continued to to grow from there as the company's value grew <laughs> masterfully executed by the investment bankers i agree 100 percent on the ipo analysis uh, <laughs> i would uh, say that but when you say there was no crap moment there's plenty of times in the history of all these businesses where there are oh crap moments <laughs> and you know i think that's another thing that we try to help entrepreneurs with, mm. which is there's plenty of dark days in every business. And I've spent too much time with Howard where people say, you know, how did you know when you were successful? And he kind of is taken aback a little and he kind of says, what are you talking about? I have to earn it every day. We have to earn it every day. Yep. I think there's, you know, life's a process, right? It's not a destination. It's a journey. And I think these businesses are tested in different, I can give you a bunch of examples where Starbucks was truly tested. It's sitting on the top of the hill now and everyone kind of thinks, ah, you know, it's been a- They've made it. Yeah. Um, so, but in terms of the IPO, that was, I, I agree with your assessment. <laughs> a. Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, Look, you know, I'm I, I'm an A two here, and not just because you know because we're we're talking to Dan. Uh, as an aside, I do think uh, it's fun. We we gave uh, like the Facebook IPO was a very challenging uh, one, and we gave that a uh, well, we gave it two grades, one of which was an A, one of which was a was I think a C. Were we both? But we anyway, we need to do a bad IPO one of these days soon. <laughs> Plenty of those. <laughs> it's hard to argue with an eighteen thousand percent appreciation uh, since the Starbucks IPO. Um, but for me, the two things like taking away from this conversation and, and you know, Dan, all your, you know, your stories and your insights that are I, I thought about a lot, but it's the, the combination of the two, I think, are so powerful and expressed so beautifully within Starbucks and within Howard. It's that Starbucks and, and Howard had this these, these two uh, equal drives within them and, and that one was was for growth um, and the other one was for for exceeding customers expectations you know every single time and i think it's the the marriage of those two things that make for the most powerful consumer companies out there i mean i think about you know and ones that i work with I, you know one that that 
you know, Dan, we, we work with together, uh, you know, with, with your colleague, David, uh, in booster, you know, early stage company that Madrona and, and Mavron are investors in together. And that's what, you know, Frank and Diego and Tyler and the team, uh, and John and everybody there, you know, that's what they do every day. They, they are hyper-focused on growth and they are hyper-focused on exceeding customer expectations every day. And, and if you can nail that and sustain that, like that's how magical companies are created. And that's in the DNA of the CEO, or mm. it isn't. And yep. I remember the early days of my relationships with Starbucks. And as a scrappy investment banker, one of the many things that I tried to do was always give store experiences. And I was hated within Starbucks because my uh, phone calls at the beginning and then my emails were rooted through the ops department. And, you know, <laughs> like, you know. On, in Westport, Connecticut at 9 p- p.m. or 9 a.m., there was a problem and people would go crazy because I would tell Howard and then Howard would tell oh, the, man. Uh, the head of ops and then the head of ops <laughs> would tell the regional person and the district person and the store manager would eventually get it. And uh, people would say, oh, you're Dan, you know. We've heard about you. We've heard about your feedback. <laughs> and they would say thank you. But And, and, and then I contrast it to what happened on Sunday morning. And here's the company, as you said, $80 billion plus. I was waiting on Sunday morning for my coffee at the Starbucks Madison Park. Mm -hmm. And I was stuck behind two large mobile orders Mm. physically. And and so I was waiting for a super long time. And I uh, shot Kevin a (laughs) note. Kevin is the, the incoming CEO of Starbucks. Yeah, Kevin Johnson. And I said, you know, uh, and I kind of framed the problem up <laughs> and the frustration. And I thought that was the end of it. I go to the Starbucks annual meeting and the head of U.S. stores, the head of Adam Brotman, the uh, digital person, and one other person all said to me, we saw your email from <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> Thanks for the insight. And it's that one customer, one cup at a time. And that's in the Starbucks vision statement or their mission statement. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of they're, they're going to, I wish I had it memorized, but they're going to feed customers' expectations one cup, one store, one neighborhood at a time. Yeah. And so there's this incredible balance between detailed execution and yet having a big vision that their employees first and then their customers can embrace. Yep. And after the after the show, why don't you just shoot me Kevin's uh, email, and then I'll be able to. Uh, to let <laughs> I'm sure our listeners would appreciate that too. <laughs> yeah, uh, oh, it's a great story. What a great story to wrap on. Um, should we move on to carve outs? Yeah, let's do it. So mine is uh, uh, a lot of the time we'll go wax philosophically about some cool Burning Man video that we saw or some completely unrelated <laughs> book that we read. Mine, mine is something that I think every single acquired uh, listener will enjoy, and that is uh, uh, an email newsletter called Pro Rata by Dan Primack on the new company uh, or from the new company Axios. So Dan wrote the term sheet for a long time at uh, at Fortune. And um, moved on to uh, to help start this company, ProRata, which is you know this this third wave of email newsletters. And uh, there's some really great content that comes out of that. There's <laughs> all also no waves. there's also a website, but I mean the the newsletters are where it's at. And they're um, the ProRata in particular is great because you get some really good insight insight by Dan, who's a, a true journalist. Um, not not uh, not to knock too hard on a lot of like tech bloggers, but like he's a he has the journalistic integrity you would expect. 
expect out of uh, a, a you know a Pulitzer Prize winning you know someone chasing the story from 50 years ago and i think uh really a pleasure to read that and then the cool thing is you get a a a list of all the companies that that have gotten funded today in vc and pe companies have gone public um and it really helps me uh someone that that uh works to create early stage companies uh you know identify trends so it's, it's pretty interesting to see what uh what's going on in the world of uh of new company creation yeah really good dan's work is uh, is and has been excellent for a long time. My carve out uh, probably also will appeal to uh, I was going to say all acquired listeners, but but perhaps not quite all. At least those of a uh, certain generation is a super fun podcast and also fun thinking back to the time of the Starbucks IPO that I discovered recently called The Wizard and the Bruiser, uh, which is a um, is a a nostalgic uh, take. Definitely not safe for work, by the way. So not like this podcast looking at geek culture from the 80s and it just takes me back to my childhood like you know the legend of zelda sonic the hedgehog uh you know all the cartoon tv shows uh super super fun stuff and these guys are hilarious so highly recommend this is uh my first carve out and i was trying to decide whether or not i should be self-aggrandizing for one of the mavron companies that i love (laughs) or not and i've decided to stay away from the Mavron companies. They are all great. We, we can be self-aggrandizing or we can be aggrandizing for you. Um, so many of the companies they've funded deliver the same kind of growth and superior customer experiences that we've talked about on this show. So, Well, thank you, David. I hope they deliver the same kind of growth. Uh, <laughs> uh, That's your job as a board member. Uh, exactly. Well, it's the management's job, but uh, anyhow, I'm going to, I'm going to do something that I wish when I was in my 20s and 30s, someone had said to me, because when you're in your 20s and 30s, the table is not set yet. You're still trying to figure out what your table is and how to set it. And there's actually a poem that was written in 1932 by a man named Peter Wimbro. And the name of the poem is called The Man in the Glass. And I will quickly read the poem because in my mind, it says it all. When you get what you want in your struggle for self and the world makes you king for a day, just go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. The fellow whose verdict counts most in your life is the one staring back from this glass. He's the fellow to please, never mind all the rest. For he's with you clear to the end. And you've passed your most difficult, dangerous test if the man in the glass is your friend. You may fool the whole world down the pathway of years and get pats on the back as you pass. But your final reward will be heartache and tears if you've cheated the man in the glass. That's great. And Dan, uh... Sexist. Uh, man, you know, it's 90 years ago, so it's really relevant for people, not yes. males. Yeah. And I can say for, for listeners, um, one of the first times I, I met Dan, um, we were heading a little email exchange afterwards and, um, he, he sent me that, that same poem. So I know it's d- near and dear to your heart and, uh, great message. Thank you for having me Thanks guys. Thanks for coming. It's, uh, exciting your format and what you're trying to do and help educate people and, 
Uh, thank you for having me be a part of course. Of Listeners, if you like the show, um, or frankly, if you didn't, actually, if you didn't, we'd love some private feedback, uh, acquiredfm at gmail.com. If you did, <laughs> my God, do we love five-star reviews. They help us grow the show. They help us get more listeners. Um, they help us have more guests on. And uh, quite honestly, what it helps us do is is bring on sponsors and uh, and then, like any good growth engine, pour it back into the show and uh, and figure out how to improve the quality and, uh, and make a better product. So help us do that. Uh, please review us on iTunes, share with your friends, and we will uh, see you next time. See you next time.